Welcome back to Lifeside Beat. I'm your host, Kevin Nguyen. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Lalo Flores. Lalo is CEO at Century Therapeutics, a Philadelphia-based biotechnology company developing transformative allogeneic cell therapies to create products for the treatment of both hematological and solid tumor malignancies. In January 2022, Century entered into a strategic collaboration with Bristol-Myers Squibb to develop induced pluripotent stem cell, or iPSC-derived allogeneic cell therapies. Prior to Century, Lalo was VP of R&D and entrepreneur in residence at Johnson & Johnson. He joined Johnson & Johnson after completing the acquisition and integration of Novira Therapeutics, where he was co-founder, president, and chief scientific officer. Prior to Novira, Lalo was department head at Merck, where he led drug discovery and development programs across therapeutic areas. Lalo received his PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology from Rutgers University and was a postdoctoral fellow at the Salk Institute. I'm incredibly excited to invite you into our conversation, so please join me and Dr. Lalo Flores on LifeSide Beat. Dr. Lalo Flores, thank you so much for your time today. Welcome to LifeSide Beat. My pleasure. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, thank you for inviting me to be part of this podcast. Sure. So on LifeSide Beat, we like to start with a little bit of the personal side. Um, so can you start by sharing with us, where did you grow up and what did you want to be when you grew up? Yeah, so I, I grew up in a beautiful town in Chile, in the northern Patagonia. I'm going to tell you about a bit of my, my family background because I think this is uh, to give you a sense of how is it that I end up where I am here. So I was born to uh, parents that had scientific background. My father was a veterinarian. My mother did research in agriculture. So that's uh, the, the economic activity in that area. So at a young age, I was exposed to, to science, scientific names, and some you know research, but in, in the agricultural side of things. And, and that, I think, was something that did influence me and, and create some curiosity for, for the sciences, especially biological sciences. Great. So obviously, you've had a long career in the biotechnology and pharmaceutical space. Were there any stories or experiences that were specific to, to healthcare growing up? I mean, growing up, I think I, I, I mentioned that, you know, the curiosity for science started at home. And then growing up in Chile, young people have to make the decision to um, go to either a professional career right away, right after high school. And as I was thinking what I wanted to do, I realized that I wanted to pursue a career in science. And that's why I recognized I was advised, I had mentors growing up, fortunately, that helped me understand that the best way to pursue a career in science is to go to, to the U.S. and go to grad school. And that was the plan that I, I laid out when I was 17. And so I came to the U.S. And, and I connected with a young scientist that was an assistant professor studying his lab, and, and that was a major influence. Certainly, you know, when becoming a grad student in a lab that needs to establish itself. So recognize the, you know, the importance of uh, really hard work, what, what science is all about, having that discipline, right, to carry through with uh, when there are setbacks in the lab and, and uh, really developing, cementing that passion for, for science. So I think my graduate training and having a, a mentor that helped you realize that science is a very competitive space as well, right? So it was very um, influential part of my, you know, early years. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So this was after, you know, you came to the United States, you uh, completed your PhD, then launched a career in industry. It looks like you spent the early years of your career in R&D. 
So I'm curious if you could share what lessons you learned during that period as an R&D scientist and how that technical training influenced your approach uh, to your role today as CEO of Century Therapeutics. So it's been a great journey, I have to say. You know, so my, as I said, my, I had my grad career was with, uh, my advisor was Danny Reinberg, who worked uh, in, in gene regulation. In those days, you know, this was the 90s, and that was a very active area of research. I was fortunate to be a very productive grad student. I published a lot of uh, papers, and um, I was recruited. I went to do my postdoc at the Salk Institute with Ron Evans, who also was a Howard Hughes investigator. I, you know, my, my thought was to, you know, become an assistant professor. And then I was recruited by, by Bob Tijan, who had started an exciting company called Tularic. Um, I decided to, to join them and really pretty much keep my postdoc. And that's where I transitioned very quickly to, uh, to industry. And, and that is what it really all began. And so what I should say about that is that that really was another experience that really influenced me greatly. That's why I, I always thought that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, starting my own company one day. Um, when you join an early start company, it's really exciting. You know, I could, I could sense the, the, the energy, right, of all the scientists that were recruited and being offered the opportunity to, to do science that could have translational value and one day help patients. That's when, when I got hooked really for with, with industry, that early experience at this company called Tularic that was acquired by Amgen in 2004. Got it. Can you just illustrate? So after this experience, your company got acquired and you found your way to Merck, became the department head. Throughout your time at Merck, you, you mentioned that you were involved in a number of therapeutic areas, research initiatives there. Can you just elaborate more on your, your time at Merck? Yeah, sure. And I'm going to tell you, elaborate a little bit on that transition. So uh, the, my years at Tulare were fantastic, were really exciting. And Merck was one of the corporate partners. I established a partnership with Tularic and that I was uh, running on the on the Tularic side. And, um, you know, these partnerships come to an end at some point. And, that's, and when that happened, I was recruited. So why don't you come to join us at Merck? And that's what brought me to Pennsylvania, where I am today, right? Through a, a series of promotions, I became department head of an area of a department that we call molecular endocrinology was really a catch-all. We were doing a whole bunch of different things, working in, in musculoskeletal, osteoporosis, uh, endocrine disorders. So it, the, the journey for me um, is being really on, on, on the R&D sides, both in biotech and at Merck. Both experiences are very valuable, uh, and I think I would encourage everyone to, to be exposed to both of them. They're different environments. My desire to go to Merck was, you know, I can recognize by being at Tularic that just bringing together a lot of smart scientists and, and driven, hardworking scientists is not enough to be successful and, and to develop drugs. You need uh, institutional knowledge is important, experience is important, and that was my motivation to go to Merck, and that's what I got. I was there for nine years. So, so that is the power of, of big pharma companies that I think, right. you know, a lot of people put down that big pharma being inefficient, but big, big pharma has terrific scientists, terrific talent. There are many things that big pharma can do very well. Absolutely. Definitely valuable to hear your perspective as someone who spent time in, in both environments. So now just wanted to fast forward to your first early stage company, Novira, where you were co-founder, president, and chief scientific officer. So this is a really interesting story. Can you please share with us the Novira story? Maybe start with how did you first get involved? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. I have to tell you, this is uh, what I'm the most proud of. Of course, now Centro is going to be my next great pride. I, I think we have great things to, to do here with Centro when I come back to that. But I spent nearly nine years at Merck, and I knew when I went to Merck that it was uh, temporary. I always, as I told you after my experience at Tularic, I knew I wanted to go back to a small biotech, more vibrant, but I wanted to learn drug development from a big pharmaceutical company. And I'll, um, soon enough, you know, after a few years, Merck, I don't know if, you know, your audience may remember there was a, a, a major a withdrawal of a, call, a drug called Viox. The COX-2 inhibitor was a great promise for, for Merck. It was a terrific drug, but it had some cardiovascular side effects. And that triggered a whole bunch of changes uh, at Merck. And um, I started looking for what I was going to do next, uh, you know, I had my eyes open and then an opportunity came along with, um, you know, some venture capital investors that were thinking about a company on uh, around virology. And initially I started working with them doing diligence, but very quickly that morphed into why don't you join us and you can be co-founder, CSO, whatever you want to be and uh, help us get this company off the ground. It can be in the Philadelphia region if that's, if you don't want to move. And so that quickly, so that's where I decided to, to leave Merck to, to start this company. But that was on 2008, at the end of 2008, 2009. So I left in 2009. And if you may recall, that was, um, you know, the, the financial crisis. Right. So funding dried up and this uh, initial concept, it will require years of basic research. And there was just no appetite for that type of innovative early stage research. So I decided to completely abandon that idea and start Novira from scratch, something that I, I had been exposed. I knew hepatitis B it was a major disease area that didn't get much attention. The other the decision in my mind for jumping into hepatitis B is that I recognized there was a lot of interest in the industry of hepatitis C, if you may rem remember. But that problem has been solved, right? There was a cure emerging, this potent combination of drugs. So when you have to anticipate as an entrepreneur where the field is going to move, the hepatitis C, you know, machinery, right? You know, in big pharma and biotech, that problem was going to be solved and eventually it was going to move into a, what is the next big problem in virology? And, and that was hepatitis B. It's a big chronic viral infection for which there is no cure. There are treatments that uh, regulate the virus, but doesn't cure it. So that was the, the, the concept, right? And, I, and I, there were some papers that have been ignored by the field that, you know, revalidated a new, a new uh, target, the capsid of the virus, which at that time it was considered to be undraggable, right? These are proteins that don't, but they're not enzymes, right? They're structural proteins that have a bind, the traditional binding site. So it's been ignored by the industry. So I said, listen, I, I, this is something that I can do. I recruited a colleague, a, an outstanding medicinal chemist from Merck to be my co-founder. And I, um, I floated this idea to these uh, investors that were supporting this fail earlier, uh, you know, biotech project that I had abandoned. And I got seed money, 500,000, which uh, it was a lot at that time for, for us, but clearly not enough to uh, launch a company. And, and that's how the story began. Can you expand a little bit more about the team and how you built that understanding? You hired a colleague from Merck, but just curious beyond that colleague, how you thought about building the team in order to, to reach ultimately the, the acquisition by J&J a number of years later? Yeah, so, so to be clear, I recruited a colleague, uh, George Harmon, to be a co-founder with me, to be my partner. And the two of us, you know, were, and we were very motivated. You know, this again, this was 2009, 2010. 
to, to um, run a very efficient drug discovery process. We're very motivated to, to running things more effectively than, than we, we, um, we were used to, to, to do it in a big pharma where you have tons of resources. And, and so our approach was to externalize everything. Um, the, the two of us would mm -hmm. design the biochemical assays. We understood the target with the, the device biochemical assays to uh, run screens with external partner. And then my my partner, medicinal chemist, would you know prosecute those leads, and then we hire chemistry outside. We started a relationship with a company called Wuji, that is a it's a big CRO, as you may know, that is based in China with operations in in the US now, and and we hire a CRO in in Germany, Evotech, that will run our screens and and us from our you know home offices libraries you know we we will analyze data and generate the next uh, iteration of uh, improvements and it was a really you know interesting uh, early years for us but we have uh, we found that way um, hits they became leads and then they became patents and finally the programs our leads mature enough that we were able to get the attention of a of a, a top tier investor uh, firm, uh, 5 AM, which Pharma was uh, is now is a, is managing partner at, at 5 AM. He's the one who led the, that uh, that uh, financing that led to the, the Series A financing that would close in 2012. And then everything changes. You know, so the early days without capital is very tough. Was very slow, but it was a great learning experience. We had to to raise money from angel investors. So it was a great learning experience, learning how to tell the story in simple terms, explain, you know, the, the next milestones very clearly and the value creation proposition, right? And, and why this was really exciting, why we believe it so deeply on what we were doing. That led, that led to this Series A in 2012 um, that brought other top tier investors. Um, and, and then the rest is history. With that, we executed on the plan. We were the first, you know, we were not aware that there were other companies, including J&J, &J, working on the same target. And we moved much faster than them. We, we were ahead of them by, all, by almost two years, even though we started about the, the same time. So, right, that really is, speaks to the, our ability to, to move faster, you know, in a smaller company setting. We ran a clinical trial. We demonstrated that our leads had clinical activity. We validated the target for the first time, and that led to the acquisition. And what I should say before I pause, Kevin, that I'm very proud of is that now there are, you know, dozens of capsule inhibitors in development. So we were the first one to pioneer the concept. When we began, nobody thought that that was a viable drug target. And today there are many capsule inhibitors for hepatitis B in development. So I'm very proud of to have pioneered that. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it sounds like in the early days, like you were mentioning, it was almost run as if it was kind of this virtual biotech model. And you brought the company together with just a couple of folks and then ultimately hit that inflection point and the rest is history. So that's really fascinating uh, to hear that perspective. Yeah. And, you know, it's good for your audience to hear that that's a very different model in the last five years that has changed dramatically. Right. Those days, you know, once I, I closed the Series A, I was uh, able to recruit, expand the team at a small site here in Dalstown in the, in the PA Biotechnology Center. And so it was very nimble at the, at the peak, the company we were 17 employees. And we achieved this exit after a single financing round, which is very unusual. Yeah, definitely uh, elements, you know, unique elements to the story, but just listening to you talk about it, I mean, all of the major uh, criteria were met, right? The large unmet medical need, strong team, 
all of these things that are core to, to forming a good company were there. So I just wanted to move on here uh, to your current company, Century Therapeutics, just spend the bulk of our time discussing the innovative and, and really exciting work that uh, you and your team are building there. Um, so to give the audience some context, following um, the Novira acquisition and ultimately the integration into Johnson & Johnson, uh, you became CEO at Century Therapeutics, which is uh, a Philadelphia-based uh, company developing allogeneic cell therapies. Can you help us understand, you know, maybe first, what is cell therapy and how is it differentiated from other modalities being used in cancer today? Yeah, sure. If you, your audience may recall that 2014, um, the, the first papers um, and presentations were made describing remarkable data uh, using these early generation CAR T's that were, you know, T cells that have been sourced from a patient, right? And then genetically modified with the lentivirus to express this synthetic receptor called uh, CARs, you know, gave these cells um, a tool to, to recognize a, a given tag, uh, tumor antigens in, 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 in patients and, and activate them and, uh, and uh, you know, thereby activate the cells and, and, and destroy all all cells that had that, that particular um, marker. And, and the data was remarkable. Patients had lost all options that were treated with these early parties. Some of them you know, were cured. And, and, and so this, um, the work from all these pioneer groups um, really inspired a whole industry. Um, and, and so this um, led to the acquisitions of the, the first you know, Kite uh, and then Juno by Celgene. Of course, spent here by right, Carl June and, and, and his team established a collaboration with um, Novartis that led to Cambria. And all of us witnessed, you know, this pioneering work is what really inspires so many, including myself. And um, having worked all my career in R&D, I mean, this was, you know, the concept of using living cells as drugs was just, I recognized that as being the beginning of a very exciting new phase, exciting new modality. And to me, what was really exciting, Kevin, was also that we had at the same time, you know, identify these nucleases, CRISPRs and other nucleases, of course, that can give us a tremendous powerful tools to genetically modify cells ex vivo. If you put these two things together, the potential for disruptive new medicines is just incredible conceptually. So I recognize that like many others, that this was the beginning of a new era. So that is what cell therapy is all about, is the use of uh, living cells that can be genetically modified so that it can, you know, infuse back into the patient to, to get a job done. You know, the most success has been in fighting cancer, of course. So, but that is what cell, cell therapy is. And now I would like to tell you <laughs> what the vision is at Century and, and how we, we plan to move the, the, the field forward. Absolutely. Thank you for, for sharing that. That's helpful. Just to get to, to Century specifically. So as you mentioned, there are currently several FDA approved autologous cell therapies on the market from the companies you alluded to, uh, Kite, Juno, and others. So let's call these the kind of generation 1.0 cell therapies. So obviously here, Century is a next generation company looking to develop generation 2.0 or 3.0. What is Century's approach in improving upon generation 1.0? Yeah, manifold. So, you know, just I think in general terms, what most people will say that, 
generation 1.0 is the is the autologous approach that again the pioneers uh, work from the pen of artists uh, collaboration the kites and and, and juno now bms right pursued and then that trigger a next wave that i would call generation 2.0 that was rather than sourcing cells from the patient that has significant issues, right? The cells, uh, the quality of the cells varies very much from patient to patient. There's a lot of uh, failures in the manufacturing. So many people recognize that the next logical innovation step was to source the cells from a, a healthy donor. That is what um, the next wave has been, right? A lot of companies are working on, on what we call donor-derived approaches where cells are, are now sourced rather than from a patient, that in the case of the autologous, now they're sourced from a healthy donor, right? So that's generation 2.0. Now with Sentry, you know, when we started Sentry, we said, well, we don't want to do either one of those. You know, we thought sourcing cells from a healthy donor is an incremental innovation. Uh, we believe it's going to have an important role in the marketplace. Uh, we, we don't negate that that's an important innovation. But we recognize that it's, uh, you know, we need to go beyond that. I'm coming back to the concept that I mentioned earlier. To me, uh, the, the key power of uh, gene uh, cell therapy is the ability to genetically modify the cells, to, to give them the right properties, right? Um, there are pathways, there are features of the cells that lead them to, to exhaust, to lose activity, and so on and, and other and so you, you might want to also have uh, approaches to potentiate give them additional functionality and all of those ideas that you can have to improve the performance of these cells can be accomplished by uh, genetically modifying the cells and the problem with the technologies that rely on on donor derived cells is that they have the ability to genetically modify those cells is, is limited regardless of whether you source them from a patient or from a healthy donor why is that? That is because a T cell, for example, they, they are reprogrammed biologically. If you expand them too much ex vivo, they will eventually exhaust. And, uh, and that is for good biological reasons, right? So to genetically modify them, you know, the cells, you, you cannot grow them too much. It's very technically very difficult. You can do some modifications. Knocking out genes is quite easy. Um, what is really important is to insert new genes at precise size in the genome and to give the cells new functionality. That is tough to do with a with a T cell that you source from a from a from a healthy donor or or or, or a, a patient. And that's why we thought the future of the space, what we wanted to do at Century, is to overcome that the, those barriers that uh, mature somatic cells have. Uh, and in, instead of using these donor-derived cells, to use uh, stem cells, in our case, induced pluripotent stem cells, and take advantage of the fact that these cells uh, have a limited replication capacity. And that is what really uh, offers a tremendous advantage to the IPSC platform that we are working with at Century, is that it solves two major problems. One is that gives our scientists unlimited opportunities to mo genetically modify our cells using modern precision gene editing tools where we knock out a gene and simultaneously we insert a new one that will give uh, our cells a new, a new functionality, potentiate certain features. Uh, and we can do that sequentially. We also, because of this unlimited replication capacity of stem cells, we have the luxury that we can select single cell clone and eliminate clones that through this uh, replication expansion process in the uh, ex vivo, 
or genetic manipulations have uh, we have incorporated unwanted genetic modifications. You know, we can subject these clones to very sophisticated and sensitive um, uh, analytical assays, like whole genome sequencing, for example, and many others uh, type of uh, genetic uh, screens where we can identify clones that have unwanted variants and we can eliminate them. And, and then select the ones that contains all the wanted, the desired genetic modifications. And then you can uh, expand those and create what we call master cell banks that are a large collection of, uh, you know, of, uh, of, of, of cells from that sing derived from that single clone um, that can be stored in, in, in vials, right? And be the source for your manufacturing of your drug product for the life cycle of the product. So this is very similar, Kevin, to, to the approach how we manufacture th therapeutic antibodies. So by going to a, a um, IPSC platform, we are able to do two things in summary, right? One is give us our scientists the, the, the ability to modify the cells genetically, which is something that you could not do with donor-derived cells. And the second one is that we can create these master cell banks from a single clone that allow our engineers to manufacture, run many manufacturing runs uh, from the same in, uh, starting material, right? So that ensures right. homogeneous product every single time. Wow, clearly a differentiator from a Century's perspective. And this unique approach generated significant strategic interest from larger pharmaceutical companies. So earlier this January, Century entered a strategic collaboration worth up to $3 billion plus with uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb. So congratulations on that deal. Um, can you please describe you know, the strategic rationale for this collaboration? Why not go it alone? How did BMS get interested? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we, uh, as a company, we receive um, with, uh, a lot of interest from, from pharma companies. There, there are two major camps in the pharmaceutical industry right now. Are those like BMS that have been at the forefront investing in cell therapy There's through their acquisition of cell gene and, and cell gene, as you know, uh, um, acquired Juno, that was one of the early pioneers. So they, they have a deep understanding of cell therapy. They have a franchise. So their motivation of companies like BMS and, and Gilead and Novartis is to stay on top. And then there's other camp of pharma companies that they're waiting, they're looking at the space, they're seeing how it's going to evolve. Uh, they recognize the pitfalls of the early generation, the generation 1.1 from patients, right, autologous, or the 2.0 allogeneic from donor derived that we discussed earlier. And they, they're waiting and see, and they see that they recognize the PSC platform that we are championing uh, has tremendous potential. So they're very intrigued. So we have received a lot of interest. And, you know, how this happened for a company from a century perspective, you know, it's important to, to recognize that these biotech companies will have ma many years uh, where they're gonna, they're gonna be unprofitable, right? Uh, we need to, to raise more money and therefore we need to be very focused on what we do on one hand. So we have decided at Century to focus on two types of diseases. Uh, one broad class is B-cell malignancies and the other one is glioblastoma. Those are the two ones that we have uh, announced publicly. And, and those are areas where we want to wholly own those programs we're developing. But cancer and the power of the platform we're developing extends beyond that. And, and, it, and oncology is a huge area. And any other new oncology indication is a, requires significant investments. And as a company, we need, to we need to be very careful with it. We should not 
you know, we, need to, we have to avoid spreading ourselves too thin, right? So it makes sense for us strategically to explore the utility of our platform in other uh, oncology indications without in, uh, investing too much of our resources. Right. And that's where a, a partner, uh, you know, come into, into play. And, and so we always thought that a partner was part of our strategy, but not any partner. We were looking for a partner that could contribute uh, complementary technologies on one hand, but also can contribute scientific expertise. For example, with BMS, what we announced was to work another uh, in a very important uh, heme malignancy called multiple myeloma. Mm-hmm. And, and also we decided to work with them in um, AML, which is another important uh, heme malignancy. They're both of them, um, they're still significant and med need, but they're very different diseases compared to B-cell malignancy that we're working on. And, and so by working with them, we allow to you know, deploy the power of our platform into two new disease areas. Uh, when our partner will bring the science, deep scientific expertise and technologies and capabilities, binders, cars, some of the, the, the tools um, that they will go into the, into the drug product. It's, uh, it's a perfect example of, this, of uh, the, the power of partnerships and why they can add so much value to both the biotech company and the big pharma partner. Right. This is obviously a headline grabber in terms of the $3 billion plus. But as you mentioned, there are things that are much more important than just the capital in in a collaboration. So, yeah, as a Wharton podcast, we love that Century Therapeutics is a Philadelphia-based company. Philadelphia's biotechnology ecosystem is growing rapidly, you know, with past success stories like Spark and now the emergence of leading companies like Century. So can you describe, you know, having spent a bulk of your career here in the Pennsylvania area, you know, what's so special about the Philadelphia ecosystem? I've been asked that question a few times, and I think one element that makes this region special is the fact that in addition of having great academic centers like University of Pennsylvania, Children's Hospital, Drexel, and Temple that have given us a source to a lot of uh, good students and trained professionals, is the pharmaceutical industry. That's what brought me to the area. There is um, such a rich uh, access to talent that being trained in industry. It takes time when you come out of uh, academia, right, to to, uh, be trained and learn how to do research in an industry setting. Uh, And so having access to individuals, uh, to talent that has been trained in industry, I think is is very unique uh, to, um, to Philadelphia. I like to speak to this area, not just as a Philadelphia area, but the Mid-Atlantic Corridor, right? So I have a bigger, broader perspective. You know, we have talent and uh, people from that we bring from New Jersey, even New York, that come here, right, in this corridor, right? Uh, And Philadelphia is preferably located. I love that our labs are near Ferry Street Station, close to Penn, right, close to Drexel, but also you know, allow our employees and visitors, investors to come, you know, and then have a short walk and be in our offices. The, the challenges that other hubs like Boston, San Francisco, uh, San Diego have in terms of competing for talent is very real. So we, we are getting to that point here, but it's even worse in other areas. So we have, we have that sweet spot of having great talent, right, from both academia and industry in the Philadelphia region. 
but also uh, you know a better cost of you know more affordable cost of living still uh, compared to those other areas. Yeah, as a student in Philadelphia, I certainly agree with that. So to wrap up, you know, what message or advice would you give to an early career business-minded professional looking to build a career in life science? I'm, I'm glad you had that, that question. One thing I wanted to say before I, I answer that directly is that I, I want to encourage more of your words on your like people like yourself to stay in the area, right? You know, we also need a science talent, but we need executives and people that get trained and they learn about the industry, right? And it is, um, you know, I would like to see that that more of the talent that trained here is retained in the area. That includes folks like, like yourself. I would say there are different paths, many different paths to success. So it's not a single one. I, I think learning the, the industry, I think, um, you know, in terms of uh, therapeutics, that is the space where I have been, of course, and many others now, right, medical devices, uh, digi digital health and you know, healthcare as a, as a field is, is growing. But th there are many paths to, to success and making a difference. Uh, and I think it, it depends on the opportunities that, that, that you get. But I, I would just suggest be open-minded, be humble about learning, focus early on on learning rather than career progression. I mean, I think uh, learning is what is most important, especially in the early form formative years. As I said, you know, large or small, there's a lot of learning opportunities. And, and just focus on that, on, on really understanding the industry and, and joining companies where you can have mentors that can help you, you know, grow um, as, a, as a person, as a professional. Great. Dr. Flores, been a real pleasure to uh, take a sneak peek into your career. Definitely looking forward to meeting in person in Philadelphia sometime soon. And thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks again for including me.